0: Please turn in your Old Testaments to Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. It's the last section of Ruth, 19, of, excuse me, your last section of chapter 1, uh, verses 19 through 22, and this is the very word of God. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You know, if you, if you want to know what somebody's really like, we, we have an old saying, don't we? Don't, don't just listen to their words. Watch what they do. Watch their actions, and then you can really understand more deeply uh, what's going on inside of a person. But, but I would add something to that this morning, and that is not just to listen to their words and watch their actions, but we can learn a whole lot about people by their reactions. Reactions to, uh, to things that just happen. You know, we can plan our actions. We can put on a good face. We can put our best foot forward. We can, we can create a sense of what we would like for people to think of us. I mean, we, we, people in the South understand that, right? But, but it's those reactions that sometimes are a little different. Sometimes we're, we're surprised by something and, and reactions can be varied and they're not always good. Think about the way you have reacted to some shocking news, to some very difficult thing, some sudden downturn, some insult, some slight that you received, um, maybe being cheated, maybe being abandoned, maybe being lied about. How did you react now, I remember one of the most embarrassing reactions I ever had. Uh, it occurred while I was in college. I lived in a downstairs apartment and a group of guys moved into the apartment above me and it was not a good thing. And I couldn't stand those guys because they were drunken every night, rowdy every night. I, we, my roommate and I were losing sleep every night. our our feelings about those guys were were being frayed and frayed and then becoming more negative and more negative. And I particularly couldn't stand uh, this one particular guy. He was so arrogant, and he drove a red Corvette. I drove a Pontiac, one of those in the Vega family or the Pinto family. And I will admit it here, before you all, I was jealous of his car, but uh, one night, uh, man, they were really partying up there, and the bass was thumping, and they were laughing and screaming, and, you know, we were <laughs> losing sleep this particular night. I'm talking about weekday night, and um, I was not in a good mood the, the next morning when I awoke, and so the next morning I went outside to, to get some fresh air, and I discovered to my horror that somebody had done something to my car. The trunk of my car was bent, bowed out, like somebody had taken a crowbar into one side of the trunk and just, and just lifted it up and just bowed it up. And I want you to know the blood ran to my face and I was furious. I knew exactly who had crowbarred my car. And I thought I might take a crow, my crowbar to his red Corvette. But I decided not to, but, uh, nevertheless, I marched up those stairs, I beat on the door, I rang the doorbell because I knew they were still asleep. And here he came. He appeared and the door cracked and he, you know, it looked like when he opened the door was the first light he'd seen in years. And his eyes were bloodshed and his blonde hair was all messed up. And and he looked at me and I virtually yelled at him, you bent my truck, my trunk. You bent my trunk. You and your buddies got drunk, and one of y'all took a crowbar to my trunk. And he looked at me with disbelief, like like he wasn't even sure what exactly what I said. And this is what he said: "I don't know what you're talking about, man." And this it gets worse. I wouldn't do anything to your little car. <laughs> Well, we'll see about that, I said, and as I marched down the, the, the flight of stairs and I decided I need to go take a look at the, the damage in my trunk, and so I came and I stuck the keys, and that was back when you used to have to open trunks with keys. I stuck the keys in the trunk, I, I turned it, and the trunk opened up, and what did I see? I saw my golf clubs. I had laid my golf clubs on top of something else, and when I forced the trunk down, I didn't realize it kind of bowed the trunk a little bit. (laughs) What an idiot. (laughs) Y'all, I wish I could say that's the last time I've reacted like that. In my heart, at least, I haven't always gone up and beat on somebody's door. Reaction. Hey, can I ask you, when your life gets crowbarred, (laughs) how do you react? You know, uh, when my life gets crowbarred, sometimes my reactions tell people more than I want them to know. And to this day, I will will just say, I I have a latent kind of underlying temper that I have to be careful of. It doesn't come out very often, but it's there. Um, What do you do when your life gets crowbarred? (laughs) when you experience some very difficult providence in your life. Well, Naomi shows us the way in this passage. Naomi does two things in this passage that just help us so much in our lives. Uh, The first thing is, as her life is in utter shambles, she recognizes the providence of God in all of this difficulty. And secondly, she recognizes... The provision of God, along with the providence. And I want to begin with this idea of God's providence and our acceptance of who God is and, 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 and being able to recognize His providence. You know, His providence is just another word for His working in our lives through circumstances. It's how He is working in the world. It's how His will is flowing out. And behind everything that happens stands a God who is working all things out. Do you understand that? A God who loves you, who loves me, and uh, who is working in us even through all of the things that are, are happening. But, but not all of God's providence feels pleasant. Right? See, we say something good happens to you, we say, yes, that is the providence of God, that this great thing just happened to me. That shows that God loves me. And then when something really hard happens, Naomi says that's the providence of God. It doesn't all feel pleasant, and it could be a financial loss, it could be a sickness, it could be a death, it could be being insulted or slandered or something like that. But the question is, how will we react To God's unpleasant providence in our lives. Isn't that a great question? Just framing that in a God-centered way. How will we react to God's, what we consider God's unpleasant providence in our lives? Now, Naomi was not a model for us in her actions. Remember, she and Elimelech, her husband, they were very well-to-do citizens of Bethlehem. They were very well-known citizens, and uh, our assumption is to protect their assets, which evidently meant more than their relationship with God. They, they packed it all up, and, and they made their assets their first and, and foremost um, matter of importance in their lives, and they moved themselves, their family, and their assets to Moab where they worshipped the god Chemosh through babies in the fire and worship through temple prostitution. It was a bad situation. And it all just fell apart in Moab. You know, trying to protect all this, they lost it all. Um, Elimelech died not long after they moved to Moab. And now Naomi's a widow. And her two sons, Mahlon and Kilion, married Moabite women who were raised in, a, in, in, in a, a God other than the God of Yahweh, raised in idolatry. And then about ten years later, we read in chapter one that Mothlon and Kilion both died. And so here is Naomi, and she's lost it all. She's pitiless. And, and uh, today, she is walking back into her hometown in rags. It's very interesting. There's a a lot of interplay here as she comes back into Bethlehem, former well-to-do citizen. She talks about all that's happened to her and why she looks the way she does. She talks about it in terms of God's providence. Uh, Verse 13 of Ruth 1, The Lord's hand has gone out against me, uh, verse 21, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. This is a part of what God has done or what God has allowed. And you know, it's always interesting, is it not, to, to see the mighty brought low. That just kind of makes a story, doesn't it? To see the wealthy become poor, to see the beautiful become faded or marred, to see the popular become obscure... Things happen. Things change. Don't you think that high school reunions tend to be some of the most interesting events that you can go to? The athletic hero is not athletic anymore. The homecoming queen no longer stands out as the homecoming queen. And then the bookworm that we all made fun of has just made his third million. <laughs> and we can be very surprised uh, by people's lives. So don't you always feel a little nervous before you go back to a re- If you haven't been back with the group of these people in a long time, don't you feel a little nervous? Uh, why is that? Well, I mean, there's some pride there, and but there's a question underlying, what will they think of me? What will they think of me? I want you to imagine how Naomi felt as she is staggering back into Bethlehem. Formerly Pleasant, that's her name, well-to-do, well-known, what will they think of me, she might have asked herself. And so here she is. She is weary. She is foot sore. She is haggard. She's broke. She has no family except a Moabite daughter-in-law. What a picture. As we read our text today, Lewis Dubin paints the picture of how pitiful she must looked, must have looked. And I love this quote. quote. Y'all help me out with this. We'll make this interactive, okay? Y'all going to fill in the blank for me. A woman who loses her husband is called a widow. Very good. A person who loses their parents is called an orphan. Listen to this, though. But so against the order of nature it is for a mother to survive all her children, that in the English language we have no word for a mother whose children have all died. What shall we call Naomi? A childless mother? Here comes Naomi, the penniless, widowed, childless mother. With a foreign daughter-in-law in tow. Now just stop right there. We all know she could have pretended. We all know that she could have scraped up some money before she left Moab and, and, and made one nice dress to put on at the city limits of Bethlehem and to walk into to Bethlehem. We all know this. You know, I think of the, the epic movie Gone with the Wind. I think of Scarlett O'Hara. Scarlett O'Hara, formerly well-to-do lady who is now poor, the Civil War has just destroyed cities, towns, and farms. And uh, Scarlett O'Hara has nothing left to her name but a bombed-out plantation house that she can no longer afford to maintain. She's got that dirt in her hand, and it's for Tara, <laughs> the plantation house. And so Scarlett O'Hara has to go to town. Does Scarlett O'Hara go to town like... Naomi, no, before she goes to town to try to find some money, Scarlett decides she will not humble herself. She has her servants who are left over at the plantation house to make a dress out of the floral green curtains that survived the Civil War. So here she comes, strutting into Atlanta, strutting into Atlanta, a walking lie, stubbornness Incarnate, pride incarnate. Brett Butler knows the story. He looks at her hands, and her hands do not look like a a, a gentrified woman. It looks like a woman who has who who cannot afford what she has, and who's who's been working and toiling. So different from Naomi, who walks in to these gawking friends in rags. You want to look at Naomi's reaction to their reaction. And it shows what God had done in her life. It shows an amazing character. Verse 19, when she, when they came to Bethlehem, listen to these words, the whole town was stirred because of them. This was, this was really something. And the woman, the women of the town said, Is this Naomi? The NIV says, puts it this way, can this be? Naomi? The fact that the whole town was stirred shows you that they were leading citizens before they left. Can you see what some of the scholars call the busybody women, the tongue-wagging women of that city? How cruel it must have been for Naomi. How did Naomi react to this humbling providence of god well it's just simply this she recognized it as god's providence these things have happened she said because god has allowed them to happen and she humbled herself look at her reply it is without any defensiveness it is without any pretense she says is is this naomi they said out loud don't call me Naomi. That's her name. Her name means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. I don't, I don't want you to call me pleasant anymore. I want you to call me Mara because it means bitter. Now, I want you to know she's not saying that she is bitter in her heart about what has happened. She is saying that her life has become very hard because God has chastened her. Don't call me Naomi. We might translate it, don't call me pleasant. Call me hard time. Because the Lord has dealt with me severely, she says. And it's, and it's really interesting. that If you look at verses 20 and 21, uh, it's, it's fascinating that Naomi at this point selects two names for God. And it's on purpose. And the names are Shaddai and Yahweh. And Shaddai is the the name for God that simply means the Almighty, the sovereign king over all the universe, the God of providence, basically. She says the Almighty, the king, the God of providence has allowed this. He has brought this, you see. And it's only after she calls God the sovereign God of providence, who can be trusted, does she say, And he's also Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. The God who loves his people, who will never abandon his people, who will provide for his people, who will keep covenant with his people. Do you understand what she's saying here? God, I have seen is both of these, he is the sovereign God of providence that I can throw myself upon and I can trust. And I'm here telling you that this has happened. And I am trusting in God. It's a a beautiful thing. And if you'll read uh, verses... Uh, Verse 20 20 through 21, you'll notice in the text, capital L-O-R-D, Lord, that's Yahweh. ESV says uh, in 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, pleasant, call me Mara, for the Almighty, for Shaddai, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and Shaddai, the Almighty God of sovereignty and providence, has brought calamity upon me. This is just interesting to me. One scholar says she consciously places all her pain, all her bitterness, her bitter experiences, her hopelessness within the structure of God's sovereignty. That's Shaddai. Y'all, that's comforting, actually. Actually. She places all of that in the, in, within the structure of God's sovereignty, Shaddai, and she leaves the explanation and the responsibility for her care with God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who loves His people. Meaning, she is humble before God, Almighty, and she is clinging to God, Yahweh. I love this quote. Far from being defensive, her cry, listen to this, her cry invites the women of Bethlehem to plumb the depths of her pain with her. She's not Scarlett O'Hara. She's saying this is very painful and I will invite you into my pain. Now I know that's not very comfortable for lots of people for us to actually talk real. See, she's not just humble, she's authentic for us to actually... Say our pain out loud. Sometimes you say your pain out loud to people and they can't handle it. They don't want to handle it and they, they walk away. Sometimes they just give you a spiritual platitude. And sometimes it draws them in. Not just to gawk at you or to make fun of you, but to say, tell me more about that. I care about you. In fact, inviting them to plumb her pain with them. This is how we invite other people. To share their pain with us. And she is a walking demonstration of humility and authenticity as she walks in. Verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord, Yahweh, has brought me back empty. And that kind of recognition of God's providence, that God is sovereign and you can trust him because he is both Shaddai and Yahweh is amazing. So how do you react to unpleasant providence? Now, let me just say, not everything that happens to us in our lives is because we did something. That's not what this text is teaching. There are things that happen in our lives we have no idea why they're happening. We may never know until glory. You know, God doesn't owe us an explanation, for how he is multitasking the universe and even in love, multitasking with us and, and with other people. Sometimes we don't know why, but, but it is God's providence. I mean, how do you react? Are you just angry? You know, do you just harden your heart? There are people right now that just have the hardest hearts because something's happened to them and it's not fair and they're just not going to get off that right there. It's okay to be angry. You just need to turn to God in your anger. It's okay to react, you know, with some emotion. I mean, just—other people just kind of ball up, you know. Just go get through it. I'm gonna get—I'm gonna be tougher than my problems. And then some people just always try to take control, always try to save face before all else. And all these are very human reactions, aren't they? All of those are reactions that you and I have had at various times in our lives to stuff that has happened in our lives. I know that these describe some of my reactions to God's providence in my life over the years. And I ask, how about you? Naomi recognizes providence and she humbles herself. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourself, therefore, beneath God's mighty hand there's that Shaddai sense beneath his mighty hand that he the covenant God the God of love might raise you up in due time so the first thing is she sees she understands God is a God of providence she is not bitter she is trusting but secondly is this notion of God's provision John Hamlin in his treatment says so eloquently and simply, yet the story of Ruth reminds us that bitterness doesn't have to be the last word. I want you to know that. Bitterness doesn't have to be the last word over your life either. One of the reasons that Ruth is is a book in the Bible is so that bitterness won't be the last word. God's provision is the last word. In the book of Ruth, the rest of the book is all about God's provision and His grace. We read in our text that as she comes back penniless and in rags, etc., she comes back at the precise time when there is a celebration in Israel of the provision of God. We read in verse 22 that she arrives, they, she and, and Ruth, we're gonna, and Ruth's going to come center stage starting next week. She and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, verse 22, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, you might read that and go, okay, at the beginning of the barley harvest. But you're you're like, whoa, that's cool. That underscores that this is not only about God's providence, this is really about God's provision because We know that barley is the first crop that comes up, and we know that when you harvest the first crop, you stop and you have a party. And you say, hey, the first crop has come in. Look how God has provided. Look at His faithfulness and His bounty. Let us dance and have song. Can you see Jewish people dancing? Let us dance in circles and and all the things that you might imagine. Because God is so faithful. God has provided, and it is a symbol of, first crop of all the harvest and all the provision that is yet to come in the successive harvest of other grains in Israel. You get it? And they came back at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is, this is signaling to a Jewish reader, oh man, that's just the first act of God's provision. There is so much grace. There are several more harvests left in this book. And that's the truth. And this is amazing. Naomi returns to join a celebration of God's providence. I want to ask you this question. Do you functionally believe in the goodness of God? Or is God on probation with you? You understand what I just said? Because sometimes we say when things are going well, oh yeah, we believe in God's goodness and then things aren't going well, we say, you know, God, I just put God on probation. I'm not sure He's good at all. We'll see. Maybe if He turns it around and, and this becomes what I want it to be, or I take charge and, and somehow it happens, then, then I will functionally believe in the goodness of God. The book of Ruth says God is good. In the midst of this providence and the provision that comes from Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Do you functionally believe in the goodness of God? And and as believers in Christ, we we ought to look at it this way. Because it's much easier for us, I think, than Old Testament Jewish folk. And, And we should look at it this way. Do you see God's greatest of all provisions? That Christ took all our sins upon himself and did away with them at the cross. That Christ took our sins that separated us. From God relationally, our sins were removed and relationship was given. This is the fountainhead, the primary goodness of God. And what this means is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What that means is that God's not out to get His children. That God chastens His children as a father chastens His children. God convicts us as a loving father. He doesn't write us off. He's not out to get us. And through faith in the cross, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you belong to Him and He loves you. This is the ultimate provision. And y'all, this is the first harvest of so many demonstrations of God's grace that we have yet to look forward to in our lives in the middle of a fallen world where we are disappointed. Those do go together, you see. So let me just for a moment before we close speak to to those who are kind of what we call out in the far country, far away from God, really doing our own thing, really taking you know, whether it's in reaction to something or or whatever, out in the far country with our own selfishness and our own sin, I want you to know, if that's where you are this morning, you can recognize the providence of God. And you, yes you, us, me, you, can trust in God's provision. Because here's the deal with Jesus. Because our sins have been paid for. People who are taking it all on themselves. People who are in rebellion. People who are trying to work it all as if God is not sovereign or good. Sinners can always return with a celebration. Because Christ has made that return possible. You never were kicked out of His family. You just wandered away, you know? Have you ever just wandered away? I've wandered away. It's just like the parable of the prodigal son. The son, you know, he he wandered away out into the, the far country. And he lived just the way he wanted to live and wild and riotous living, King James says. But then in the, the parable, the son was humbled, wasn't he? He recognized the providence of God, and he recognized the provision. It says he came to himself, and he said, you know, even the hired people in my father's house, even the hired people are treated better than I am right now. I will arise, and I will go back to my father and say, I'm not worthy to be your son, uh, etc. And the father welcomes him, doesn't he? That's one of the beautiful moments in the prodigal son. The father welcomes him, he hugs him, he kisses him. And, he's, and he's, there's a huge celebration when this totally turbo sinful son returns to the father. It's welcome. There's celebration. You know, it, it, is, it is just the opposite with God and his grace than the way you and I would think it is. You know, we would think this way, and this kind of just comes from, from very human thinking. We would think, you know, we, we get on our high horse and we decide the way it's going to be, and we you know, are going to run our own lives regardless of what God says. We're going, to, we're going to try to make sure that we have what we want. We're going to make our lives work it, by any means that we choose, irrespective of God. And if we came back we'd get punished. If we came back, we'd get spanked. you got to take your licks, you know, when you come back to your daddy, right? So to speak. That's not the way it works with the father and his provision. You no, know, just like the story of the prodigal son, we don't take our licks when we come back to the father. We take our licks in the foreign country. You get it? God aches for us to be with Him because He loves us. We take our licks in Moab, one of the most profoundly tragic and interesting things about sin, and my life and your life is that sin isn't just waiting for consequences. Sin has its own consequences built in right now because we are alienating ourselves from the Father. We are alienating ourselves from the Father's intense and beautiful and intimate love. Yes, we we are creating this Even though He still loves us, we are going to put our life and our happiness on certain things, regardless of what God says, and they're not working. And it's turning into ashes right there in our hands. Don't you know this? I know it. You know it. Sin doesn't just have consequences. Sin, it has built in. Consequences because we are taking our licks in the foreign country. But God loves His children. God loves His wandering children. He'll leave 99 of them who aren't wandering just to go out and find the one. Isn't that beautiful? He wants us back. He wants you back, and he wants to celebrate at your return. The book of Ruth is a picture of God's grace for sinners, where he really means it when he forgives. There's no Indian giving. He really means it, and he really does give us a new start, and he really does give us more provision than we ever imagine because only he can think up such grace far beyond the human mind. He loves to provide for his children. Finally, God's provision is found in the first sentence of chapter 2, and I won't go deeply into this, but I think we just got to go sneak on over into just chapter 2, verse 1, and it, it, it starts with these words, now Naomi had a relative. Naomi had a relative. Verse Ruth 2 1, I read it from the NIV 84. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, her husband, a man of standing, whose name was Boaz. You see, this is the moment where she says, Don't call me. Naomi, call me Mara because the sovereign God in his providence has brought me back in rags, but he is Yahweh and I can trust him. And the next thing you see is that Boaz arrives on the scene. And the moment that Boaz arrives on the scene, everything is different. He is the primary vehicle by which God will provide more than they ever dream. But here's the deal. You've got to go back to Bethlehem sometimes for, Moaz, for uh, Boaz to arrive on the scene. You've got to trust God. You've got to take a step. You've got to believe in God's goodness, you see. This is a story of providence and provision. So, let's humble ourselves and come home. I do a lot of thinking personally before saying these words publicly to you. Let's humble ourselves before God's humbling providence and let's come home. Let's believe in His provision in Jesus. Repent with me and let us experience His grace individually and even as a church. And his celebration over us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, would you forgive the things that we attribute to you that are not, you're not like that? Would you forgive that we want to either rebel from you or rebel from God or play God in our lives so often And Lord, would you look upon your children this morning and would you see people that are desperately trying to fill their own lives in many ways? Would you see people who are driven more by fear than love in many ways who need to be freed up to see you not only as holy, but as good, as sovereign, Overall, including the difficult things that happen to us in a fallen world and the provider of all we need. Oh Lord, we pray that you would cause us to actually have a moment of clarity in our lives. Would you help us to see where we are substituting other things for you? Will you help us to see where we are trying to drive our lives and other people's lives, irrespective of you? Would you call us in our hearts to fall down before you in trust and in recognition that you are both sovereign, great, and good? Oh Lord, would you take us back to the cross if we need reconvincing, to show us That we really are yours. That you will never leave us or forsake us. And that you want to provide in beautiful ways for your children. If you've never put your trust in Christ and you're just trying to make it to God by your religious efforts, and you see that Christ alone and Christ only has come to deal with our selfishness and sin, and you want grace this morning. You want that relationship. Just pray with me, Lord, I see it. I want to turn from everything that I have called religion, everything that I have called Christianity, and I want to put my trust, Jesus, in what you have done for me on the cross Thank you that even now, Lord, I receive you, the living, reigning Christ into my life. Oh, Lord, thank you for forgiveness that is forever and for a life that you want to lead. And Lord, for those of us who have walked with you for many years, would you take us back to the simplicity of humility before your mighty hand so that we might be lifted up? By your mighty hand. Lord, we pray that you would free us from the, the self, the condemnation that is built into our rebellion. And that you would bring forth bounty and feasting and celebration with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.